0: No chapter in the Bible strikes more fear into my heart than the one we're going to look at this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 11. When I read about David, the man after God's own heart, the man who had the courageous faith to take down Goliath, the man who had such a heart that he could write those psalms of praise. When I read about how David fell into the sins of adultery and deception and hypocrisy and murder, I'm horrified. And the scary thing is that this didn't happen when David was in his teens. This didn't happen when David was in his early 20s. This happened when David was about 50 years old. He had walked with God for years. You know, we would like to think that walking with God builds up an immunity descent. We would like to think that after 15 or 20 or 30 years, we would be almost invincible. And Satan wants you to believe that as well. Because if we are not painfully aware of our own propensity to sin, we will not be guarding against it. In fact, the first step to falling is thinking that you are beyond temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." So before we jump into this passage, I want you to come to grips with this truth. If it happened to David, it could happen to you. If it happened to David, it could happen to me. None of us, young believer or old believer, male or female, is exempt from the lessons of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, whenever somebody, especially a godly man like David, falls into gross sin, we tend to think that it happens suddenly and without warning. But that's not the way it is. Nobody falls into serious moral failure in one sudden impulsive outburst of passion. Louis Palau makes this point in his book, Heart After God, He says, nobody gets fat overnight. It's one pizza after another, one ice cream cone after another. And you hardly notice it until one of your children comes up, pokes you in the stomach and says, Dad, you've got a big belly. Immorality begins with tiny things sown in your youth. Little things, little attitudes, little habits. Maybe some casual petting on a date. Maybe some pornography that fell into your hands. Maybe a fascination with sensual novels and stories. Little things. Yet if you don't crucify them, if you don't bring them to judgment, if you don't face up to them for what they are, sin, they can destroy you. They can blur your moral judgment at a critical, irreversible, juncture in life. Then he goes on to tell how on June fifth, 1976, the massive Teton Dam in Idaho collapsed without warning, sending millions of gallons of water surging into the Snake River basin. It caused the death of 14 people and nearly $1 billion worth of destruction. Everybody was shocked. Everybody thought it happened suddenly but the reality is that it didn't happen suddenly. You see beneath the surface of the water a hidden fault had been gradually weakening the entire dam. It started small enough just a tiny bit of erosion but by the time it was detected it was too late and the workers on the dam had to flee to escape for their lives. Nobody saw the little flaw and nobody got hurt by it. Everybody saw the big collapse and many were hurt by it. Moral failure is like that. It starts with little flaws, it starts with little cracks below the surface. Those little cracks that nobody else can see lead to a major collapse that everybody sees and that major collapse in David's life is described in the first five verses of chapter 11 it says then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David stayed at Jerusalem Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now I've noted three steps in the moral erosion of David's life. You can see them on the back of your bulletin. The first is the conditions. If I had it to do over again, I think I'd call them the compromises. These are the flaws below the surface. These are the little cracks in David's life. And I've picked out five of them. Number one is unchecked sin. As we have seen, David was a man who trusted in and obeyed and worshipped the Lord. He was a man through whom God accomplished great Things. He expressed his love for God in beautiful songs of praise. He is called the man after God's own heart. But there was one area that David failed to confront in his life. One area where a major or a minor crack began to develop and got bigger and bigger, and that was his relationship with the opposite sex. David never dealt with his sexual. Lust and Satan found that crack in David and began to chip away at it until David collapsed. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3 and notice verse 2. It says, sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam. Then look at verse 3. His second, Chaliah by Abigail. And the third, Absalom, the son of Machah. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, you pronounce these names, Shep- Shephetai, the son of Abital and the sixth, Eathraim by David's wife Eglah. Now I count six sons by six different wives. And then turn over to chapter five and verse thirteen. It says, Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. David didn't believe in the axiom, three is a crowd. In fact, when, when he fled Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 15, 16, we're told that he left 10 concubines at home to take care of his house. So at the least, he's got eight wives and 10 concubines, probably far more than that. You say, well, Dan, Polygamy was customary in that day. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, let me show you what the big deal is. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. God says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses from among you. And then he goes on to describe some things about this coming king. Verse 16, moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. And then he goes on to say, he shall not take you back to Egypt because you'll never go there. Verse 17, he shall not, notice, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now notice verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. What law? He shall not multiply wives. He shall write a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Here's a special law for the king. And that law is, don't do like the other kings do. Don't multiply wives. But instead of confronting himself with the truth of God's Word, David said, well, everybody else is doing it. He never checked his lust. He'd see a beautiful woman, and he would just keep adding her to to his harem, either as a wife or a concubine. Now you would think that David's passion for women would have been reduced by the fact that he had all these beautiful wives and concubines. I mean, when he saw Bathsheba on the roof, he could have turned around and called for any one of, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 beautiful women to come and satisfy his lust, but he didn't do that. Which I think teaches us an important principle feeding sexual passion does not cure the problem. Sexual passion is not like hunger so that when you feed it, it goes away. Sexual passion is like a fire. The more you feed it, the more it rages. The solution to sexual lust is not indulgence. The solution is self-control and obedience. The solution to sexual lust is not to feed it, the solution is to starve it. So David's first flaw, first crack, was unchecked sin in his life. He had compromised and compromised and compromised. Second crack was success. At this point in time, David was at the zenith of his career. He had solidified the kingdom. He had never lost on the battlefield. He was undefeated. He was the most powerful monarch in the Near East. He was the greatest leader Israel had known since Joshua more than 300 years earlier. Spiritually, the nation was probably in the best shape it had ever been in under David's leadership. When he took over from King Saul, Israel's territory was about 6,000 square miles. He had now extended that to 60,000 square miles. He had extended the kingdom, the territory, tenfold under his leadership. David was successful. But there's something you need to know about success. It makes you vulnerable. When you haven't made your mark yet, you're struggling and you're on guard. But often, when you make it, you let your guard down. When your life is filled with trials, you're usually depending on the Lord. When your life is just smooth sailing, you often take your eyes off the Lord. Like the church at Laodicea said in Revelation 3:17, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Success often breeds that attitude. Verse 1 tells us David was so successful and so confident, he didn't even bother to go into this battle. He just sent Joab and they routed the Ammonites. It's great to have success. It's great to have prosperity. But don't miss this. When testing comes, we're purified. When prosperity comes, we're vulnerable. Third condition was a lack of accountability. You know, David was a very powerful man. We read later on in 1 Kings 16 that even Bathsheba, after being his wife for almost 20 years, bowed down when she came into David's presence. Did your wife do that? David was on a level where he was above everybody else. And he didn't have anybody who confronted him. Now, Joab, the commander of the army, often confronted him, but he was not a godly man. He would confront him about strategy. He wouldn't confront him about sin. Next week, we're going to see that Nathan confronted him, but that was after the fact. You see, what David needed more than anything else was to have someone who, years before, began to see the compromises in his life and and came to him and said, David, I love you enough to tell you that you're not dealing with lust in your life. David made the mistake of surrounding himself with yes men, and he didn't have anyone to hold him accountable before God. Fourth fault, laziness. Notice what it says in verse 1. It says, it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. Now, I don't know why that would be. I guess when the weather got nice, you you contacted the other king and said, hey, it's time to fight. You know, it's, it's battle weather. Let's go. So in the spring, when it was time for kings to go out to battle, David stayed home. You see, David got in trouble at a time when he was supposed to be at work. He was shucking his responsibility. There's an old saying that goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And there's a lot of truth to that. Whenever you have a lot of time on your hands, you're vulnerable. Vacations can be very difficult. You get out of your normal routine sometimes of of daily work and you often get out of your routine of Bible study and prayer and you make yourself vulnerable because you you get all that time. You go into it thinking, I'm going to read this book and that book and that book. You don't read any of those books. You don't even read this book. And you make yourself vulnerable because you become lazy in that situation. Fifth fault, self-indulgence. Spring had arrived, and David should have been out with his troops in battle, but he thought, well, you know, Joab can handle it, and besides, I deserve a rest. I'm going to sit this one out. Successful people often rationalize that they have sacrificed and worked hard to get where they're at, and so they have a right to enjoy themselves. And successful people often get what they want, when they want it. Now we all need a certain amount of leisure and rest, but we need to be on guard against self-indulgence. It's a crack in the dam. So as we come upon David in 2 Samuel 11, he's a sitting duck for temptation. He has a long history of unchecked sexual lust. He's at the pinnacle of success and not accountable to anyone. And he has decided that he has worked hard enough. And so he's lazy and self-indulgent. Which brings us to the second step, the commitment. This is the breaking of the dam. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we're given the recipe for failure. It says, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The recipe for failure. Enticement, lust, sin, death. And that's the exact progression of David's fall into sin. First, he was enticed. He looked at her. Look at verse 2. It says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. That's where it starts. Now Hebrew homes were commonly constructed with a flat roof that served as sort of an upstairs patio. You could go up there and catch the breezes and it would be a cooler place to be. David apparently took a siesta and he got up from his siesta and he was walking around on his roof and his eyes looked down to a nearby house where a woman was bathing herself. And the Bible says she was very beautiful in appearance. The Hebrew says she was beautiful and then it adds very as an adjective. Now let me make some observations. Number one, there is a difference between temptation and and sin. It's normal for a man to look at a woman who is dressed seductively and be tempted, or in this case to look at a woman who is naked and be tempted. The looking is not sin. The longing is sin. If David had immediately turned away and gone back into the palace, He would not have committed sin and we wouldn't have these two chapters written in the Bible. But when the glance turns into a gaze and sexual fantasies begin, you have crossed the line into sin. You may not be able to avoid the temptation, but you can avoid the sin. Second observation. Men are sexually tempted primarily by sight. There is a fundamental difference physiologically between men and women when it comes to sexual arousal. Men are aroused primarily by sight and very rapidly. Women are aroused more by touch and feelings of emotional intimacy, and it takes longer than with men. Now, let me lay out two practical ramifications of those facts. Number one, ladies, you should be aware of this and dress modestly. If you wear seductive clothing, you're making it very difficult for your brothers in Christ to walk uprightly before the Lord. You say, well, they shouldn't have such dirty minds. Well, you can say that, but you're overlooking the basic way that God has made men. You see, I don't care how spiritual a man is, he's got hormones. And that's why part of the fault in this situation has to rest on Bathsheba, who was bathing in a place where she had to know that David could see her second ramification. Gentlemen, you must guard what you look at. Job 31.1 Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He made a decision. He made a covenant with his eyes, which he knew was the problem, that he was not going to look another woman. You see, if you are going to win the war against lust, you must make a prior commitment to guard what you look at. And make it ahead of time because when you get into the throes of lust, reasoning is not one of your top priorities. That means that certain magazines, certain TV shows, certain movies must be off-limits. I commit myself ahead of time to say, I'm not going to look at those things. That means when the Sears catalog, the sales catalog arrives and you're flipping through it and you hit the lingerie department and see the seductive ladies, you don't stay there. You close it and go away. Which brings me to the third observation. The solution to lust is not to fight, it's to flee. If you don't flee from sexual temptation, you will fall. If you linger, you will lust. Joseph is the classic example. He ran away so fast from Potiphar's wife that he ran right out of his coat. The Bible never says that you should stand and fight sexual passion. The Bible never says to stay and pray about it. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts. David would not have fallen if he had led. David would not have fallen if he had turned away and not taken a second look. And neither will you. And so the first step in his progression is he looked. The second step in the progression is he lusted after her. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. David is going for the bait. He is saying, I'm interested. Tell me more. And so he asks, who lives in the yellow house with the bathtub on the roof? And the response comes back. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Now the servant tells him, and in telling him, he sort of gives him a subtle warning. He says, she's married. Now that should have been a major stop sign. He's inquiring, he's thinking, well, I'll add her as a concubine. The answer is, she's married. It should have been the end of the conversation. And then he adds something else. He says, she's not only married, she's not just married to anybody, she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, in 2 Samuel 23, we are given the names of David's mighty men. These were like green berets. These were like navy seals. These were the guys who were the highly trained and decorated warriors. And one of those only 37 men was this guy, Uriah the Hittite. So she's married, but not just married to anybody. She's married to one of the guys that is your top fighting man. Story should have ended right there, but it didn't because as I said before lust and reason don't cooperate and that's why you make your commitment ahead of time before you find yourself in this scenario. Now I find it telling that Satan didn't hit David with the temptation of another man's wife until this point in his life. Satan bided his time for 20 years and watched David take into his harem one beautiful wife and concubine after another. He watched him make one compromise after another and only then did he dangle a married woman in front of him and David fell. He looked He lusted, and thirdly, he lay with her. You see it in verse 4. David sent, took her, and lay with her. Now, David had already sinned in his heart, but now his sin is magnified. He moves from thought to deed. Now, I've heard people rationalize, well, I've already committed adultery in my heart. I might as well go ahead and do it. Not so. Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, it is adultery in your heart. But let me help you understand, there are degrees of sin. And when you have only committed adultery in your heart, that only involves you. But when you commit adultery, that involves your body being linked with another person's body and it involves another person being involved in that sin. To be involved physically with someone else multiplies the sin and digs you in deeper. Now, we need to understand that at this point in time, this felt great for David and Bathsheba. This was new. This was fascinating. It was like being in love all over again. And that's the way sin is. Satan is like a salesman trying to sell you something on credit without telling you the cost. He's there on the front end telling you how wonderful the product is, but he's never around when the bills come due. And even the secular world understands this about adultery. Reader's Digest had an article in it, Six Myths About Extramarital Affairs. This was myth number four. Myth number four was, affairs are fun. And it pointed out that at first it's very exciting and pleasurable, but it quickly fades. In about three to six months, the glow wears off and the real world starts to intrude. Well, for David, the real world intruded about a month later when verse 5 says a messenger came and handed him a sealed message and David opened the message and it read, I am pregnant, yours truly, Bathsheba. Which led to the third step, the cover-up. Our natural tendency when we sin is to cover it up, and that's what David did. David, if you read these verses, David starts with Plan A. I'm going to have Uriah come back from the battlefield. He'll come home. He'll go with his wife. He'll sleep with his wife, and he won't know that this is not his baby. But verse 11 says, Uriah comes home and he says, I can't relax at home and sleep with my wife when the troops are camping in the open field. And so he slept outside the door of David's house. Now that should have been a slap in David's face because he's saying, I can't be at home relaxing when the troops are out on the battlefield. What's David doing? He's at home relaxing, sleeping not only with his own wives, but Uriah's wife. Plan A didn't work because of the character of Uriah. So he moved to plan B, and plan B was that David got Uriah drunk in verse 13. He set him down and said, have some more wine, have some more wine, have some more wine, and he got him drunk. That still didn't work, because Uriah still wouldn't go home. He still slept outside the door of the palace, which tells me that Uriah was more morally upright when he was drunk Than David was when he was sober. Or another way to say it is David was more intoxicated on lust than Uriah was on wine. Plan A didn't work, Plan B didn't work. So he moved to Plan C get rid of Uriah. And David tells Joab, the commander of the army, to put Uriah at the front of the troops and then in the fiercest part of the battle, withdraw and leave him so that he will be struck down. And Joab complies. And Uriah is killed in battle. Bathsheba mourns for a while and then marries David. Cover up successful, right? Not so fast. Let me give you three factors that make every attempt to cover up sin ultimately fail. Number one, sexual sin always drags you into other sins that you hadn't planned on doing. David was a man of integrity. But here we see him trying to deceive Uriah, and then when that fails, he goes further than he ever dream he would go and he murders him. You want to hear a modern day equivalent? Richard Harper was the youth pastor of Hollywood Baptist Church in Rome, Georgia. He was married and the father of three little girls. His best friend was a guy named Thad Reynolds who was a deacon at the church. Thad was married and the father of four little girls. They were best friends and they had entertainment together. They went to each other's house and did things together and spent time together. Well, Richard Harper, the youth pastor, had an affair with Chad's wife, Michelle. And on July 5th, 2004, almost exactly two years ago. Richard, the youth pastor, conspired with Michelle, and he stabbed Thad 19 times with a six-inch hunting knife. And Richard and Michelle are presently in jail, awaiting trial for murder. Now, you think either either of them thought that that might happen? when they first looked, and flirted, and longed, and lusted. You see, looks can kill. David broke one of the Ten Commandments. He coveted his neighbor's wife. And then he broke another. He stole her. And then another, he committed adultery and then another, he lied, and then another, he murdered. Sexual sin always drags you in deeper than you intended to go. Second, second reason why you can't cover it up. Sexual sin always hurts others. Uriah was not the only individual that got killed. If you look at verse 17, it says the men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. You see, there are many families in Israel grieving the loss of their husbands and fathers because David didn't control his lust. Sexual sin is never a private matter between two consenting adults. Innocent people always get hurt. In fact, as we'll see next week, David's family suffered terrible consequences because of his night of passion with Bathsheba. You never sin without hurting others. And then let me give you a third reason. You can't cover it up. Sexual sin is evil in the sight of God. Cover-up attempts never succeed because God sees all. Sexual sins never succeed because God's vision extends into every bedroom. And God is the one with whom you ultimately have to deal. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. You can cover your tracks in the sight of man, but every step is visible in the sight of the Lord. And you can try to massage your guilt the way David did. In fact, look, look at verse 25. In the middle of that verse, he says to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. Or literally, he says, do not let this thing be evil in your sight. Now, we've, we've conspired to kill this guy, but don't let it bother you. Don't let it be evil in your sight. Now, contrast that with the end of verse 27. It says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David says, don't let it be evil in your sight. He's worried about man's sight. The reality is it's evil in the sight of the Lord. And I find it rather ironic that David spent all this energy trying to hide this sin that has become one of the most well-known incidents in the entire Bible. We need to underline Numbers 32, 23. Some of us men need to put it on our mirror so we see it in the morning when we're shaving. And that verse says, be sure your sin will find you out. You don't commit sin and hide it and get away with it. Be sure your sin will find you out. If you don't get anything out of this message, please get this. Deal with sin in your life today. If you've got moral cracks under the surface, repair them today. If you are playing games with God by indulging in secret lust, judge it as sin and turn from it. If the Holy Spirit has put his finger on an area of compromise in your life, don't brush him aside. Face it. You know, it was in the context of discussing lust and adultery that Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying when it comes to the area of sexual sin, We need to get radical. If you tolerate it, it's like gangrene. It will spread and destroy you. If you tolerate the little faults, the little cracks, one day the dam will break. Deal with sin in your life today. I'm going to have the praise team come back before they sing, I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing in closing this morning. But after you stand up, because during our closing today, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I don't want anybody to come forward and ever go to, oh, there's a guy that's... Uh... I want you to stay in your seat, but I want you to... Get real with the Lord today. So before we sing, would you just bow your heads? And wherever the Spirit of God may have put his finger on something in your life that needs to be dealt with, would you begin to deal with it? Would you would you say to the Lord today, Lord, I've got cracks below the surface.